All right, so we're going to continue today like Peter was getting at, basically kind of a part two to last week if you were here, uh, and, and kind of the week before as well. Paul has been, uh, the context here is Paul's writing one of his letters. He wrote two of them that we have at least recorded in the Bible, these inspired ones by the Holy Spirit, uh, two letters to the Thessalonian church. So he went there, he was called by God to go there to preach in the Macedonian region. Thessalonica was one of the cities. Preached, many rejected, many received. He was driven out of the city by an angry mob, and then he had correspondence with this church later from Corinth, a different city to the south. He heard about what they were doing, what they were up to, how they were um, encouraging, loving one another, evangelizing the lost in their area, and, and a lot of just good report. And so he writes back to encourage them, but they are still relatively young in their faith and, and young as a church, and so he writes back to really encourage their, their perseverance, to keep doing what they're doing. In fact, later in the book he says that. He says, uh, do more and more what you've been doing. He, they're loving each other well in the spirit of how God has loved them in Christ. He says, keep doing what you're doing over and over again. Just maximize it. Uh, keep praying for more of that, that uh, love and good deeds and uh, gospel preaching to go forth to, to more people in your city. So continuing from last week then especially, we're going to talk about this idea of imitating Christ. That's one of the things Paul's thankful for, for this church, is they're imitating Christ's joyful suffering and uh, more as well, which we'll unpack and look at particularly Paul, how he's, uh, how he's doing that himself. And so we kind of switched gears here. Last week's a bit more broad, think about it that way, a little more broad on uh, Paul saying, I'm thankful for how you've imitated us, Paul and his team, so Timothy and Silas, kind of his associates, and, and how they're uh, imitating Christ. So, but really both. Paul's saying, imitate us, copy us as we are copying the Lord, but specifically with that slant on joyful suffering. Which is really, it, maybe that's not a new concept for you, but uh, for, I'm guessing for a lot of you it was. When you think about imitating Christ, what, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And if it's not joyful suffering, put it up there. It should be one of the first things on your list is, what does it mean to resemble Jesus? It means to die like him. That's primarily why I came into the world, was to suffer on a cross and die again. So to imitate him is to live a cross-like existence, to bear a cross, to suffer for others for their good, to put other people first. Like God, the God of the universe put us first before himself. He suffered. He sent his son to die because he loved us that much. As a substitutionary sacrifice, he loved us that much uh, to, um, to pay that price uh, for our acquittal, for our deliverance, that wrath might pass over us. So uh, today then we're going to read 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, and this, look at this idea of God's affectionate desire for lost sinners We'll get there. There's a lot of things going on. There could have been five titles for today, but I had to pick one. So we'll focus on that because that's a special thing, I think, and um, we'll get there in just a bit. But let's read verses 1 to 12 to start. Paul speaking, the Apostle Paul. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error, or impurity, or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For he never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. 
we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to work in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. All right, so the, the big question today that uh, usually is for us every week, but especially when Paul's talking about ministry like he is today, we'll add uh, something here. But the big question is, what can we learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christian living from this passage? And there's uh, some special things here going on for those of you who are leaders at here at Hiawatha, or maybe a different church and you're visiting or you're aspiring to that. We'll, uh, we'll talk about that as we go, but, but this applies to all of you. If you're a Christian, some of this ministry, Christian living, how to treat others, how to live in the context of the church is universally applicable uh, to, to all believers. So, but first, a couple of sides here. Before we get into that, I'll come back to it. <clears throat> a couple of sides that maybe you're thinking. I know for me, um, <clears throat> when I <clears throat> would read passages like this, and if you know Paul, he's very personal. He's a pastor at heart. He talks very much, uh, very individually at times about specific people he knows and loves, and he pours his heart out to, to his church. And um, a lot of times he's talking about himself, his posture towards these churches, what he was like, the, the circumstances surrounding his arrival, how, how his heart was towards them, how much he loved them, his good deeds. Here he says the righteousness and blamelessness of his conduct towards them, how he acted rightly, and not to be a burden to them and ask them for tons of money uh, as, as their pastor, but just to work so that they wouldn't have to do that. All that stuff we'll talk about. But the question here is, <clears throat> is Paul bragging? Kind of sounds like he's bragging a little bit, right? I mean, at least, at least a little bit. Like, he's talking a lot about himself. And it's something that we, that we actually say from other angles that the Bible does, that that's not actually a good trait, right? It just depends on the spirit of your, of, of, by which you're doing it in your heart. But just to address that question to begin, is Paul bragging? The answer is no, not if he's trying to make Jesus famous through his actions. And more precisely, not if he's not the source of his good works. So let me say it this way, and I think I have it up here as well. The only way that this is not pride for Paul is if Jesus alone is the one great cause behind his love and his actions toward the Thessalonians. That's it. That's the only way it's not pride, it is if Paul's thinking that I'm not the source of any act of love that comes from my heart. Otherwise, it's about him, right? But if he believes that Jesus is the cause of his love, the cause of his good works, the cause of his blamelessness, the cause of his posture towards his church when he plants it, then it's, just, then it's not bragging. It's just acknowledging that God not only saves but empowers to love and good. He's that Jesus himself is alive in him, and he's at work. Uh, helping him to preach, helping him to start churches, helping him to love and to live this way uh, before them. So the flip then is true as well. Uh, and I think the main reason why, and this might seem strange, I actually had a, um, uh, a mentor in college. I was a part of a campus group at the U of M here, and a mentor who moved to France when I was uh, graduating. And he, he wrote me a nice note uh, just about what he felt about me and all these things, experiences we had together and and at the end, he put this verse from Philippians 4, I think it was, which is a verse kind of like this, which says, uh, imitate me. And I remember reading that thinking, that's the verse he gives, you know, is, is imitate him. Like he's saying, this guy's name is Joe, and he says, imitate Joe. But the more I thought about it, the more, and you read it in context, the more I thought, oh, it's actually, I do want to imitate him, my mentor, because he's imitating Christ. 
And it's not really him anyway. Because really what he's saying is imitate the Christ that's in me. Imitate the suffering. Imitate the other's focusedness and, and so forth. And so, but, the still, but the question remained is how do we really talk like that? Like, do you guys talk like this ever? Is this something that, you know, when, as you mentor people, maybe some of you have uh, people under you that you're spiritually guiding, do you talk this way ever about yourself? Um, and, and I think, so as we flip this around, like the main reason why we don't tend to talk this way sometimes is because our gospel is, is at times half-baked. It's not full. You know, we think maybe Jesus saves me from my sins, but, but I alone am in control of my life after that. And if, and if you think that, then you'll never talk this way because you'll be afraid of being arrogant, you know? And in one sense, rightly so. But, but, but the problem is our gospel's not full. It's not, it's not holistic. You know, the, the reality is Christ saves us from our sins and he empowers. When we look at the cross, we also see the empty tomb after it. So we believe in sin atonement. We believe that his blood washes us, but we also believe that he resurrects us. He empowers us. His spirit lives in us. And he causes us, as Ephesians 2.10 says, he creates in us good works in Christ that we might walk in them, that he already determines beforehand that they should be. And so resurrection is a big piece to that as well. If we believe that, if our gospel is that robust, then we'll tend to recognize these good deeds in us and actually talk about them with others, not for our own fame, but for Jesus's, that he might get more famous in them. It's just to say that he's saving us this much. Isn't it incredible? that he's saving us that much. He's dying for our sins and he's saving us so much that, that every good work the church has ever wrought in her history and right here in Minneapolis and Hiawatha Church is a gift from him. He is generous in that. He's so loving, he's so good that he would be that involved in, in our lives. And so, so speaking this way comes from maturity. It's not arrogance. Speaking this way, as long as we have the right mindset, of course we can have the wrong mindset, then it's arrogance, but the, wrong, the right gospel mindset knowing really robustly what happened on the cross and through the resurrection actually leads us to, to recognize these things, to talk about them carefully, humbly, and to Jesus' fame. All right, so one. So Paul's not bragging. Uh, the second aside is, is this, or <clears throat> question. Why is stuff like this even in the Bible at all? You guys ever wonder that? It's one of my big questions, uh, has been for years, is why is stuff like this, Paul's personal, uh, kind of contextual, circumstantial issues, a part of the Bible at all. Circumstantial issues like surrounding Paul's relationship with his churches. Uh, he talks a lot, if you're aware, about the sending of his associates to other people. Like big chunks of the New Testament letters are about Timothy going and Epaphroditus, uh, different individuals that were kind of messenger types, going to visit these churches and kind of bringing gifts back to Paul and reports and stuff like that. And it's not just a verse, it's big chunks, uh, usually at the latter parts of the letters, but they're, um, they're a big part of uh, the sometimes lengthy instructions of what to bring with them when they visit him. And, and sooner or later, we have to ask the question, what is this doing in the Bible, right? What, what are these things here for? They're not there by coincidence. If we believe God wrote the Bible and he's intentional, he doesn't make mistakes. These are important uh, for us to uh, learn from as well. So specifically, if this is not, um, if it's not concrete, specifically, have you ever wondered why uh, the, or what the relationship is between Paul saying things like in Ephesians 1, uh, 3 to 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, right next to things like 2 Timothy 4, which says, when you come to me, bring the jacket that I left at Carpus, uh, with Carpus at Traus. Also the books and all the parchments too. Like, what? Like, winter's coming, bring my jacket. 
That's in the Bible, you know? So it's like, well, what is that doing there, right? And this is one verse, but there are big sections of this in the scriptures. What's going on? Does it really have to be there? And the answer is absolutely it does. It has to be there. God wants these little mini instructions and contextual, circumstantial comments to specific people to be there for, for um, very important reasons. It's almost as if there are little segments of narrative mixed in with an otherwise straightforward letter, or like an epistle genre we, we, we call letters like First and Second Thessalonians are letters. Straightforward teachings and statements about the nature of Christ and salvation, but it's like little segments of narrative are kind of embedded in, in these letters. So then the question becomes, how do we read this part of Scripture? How do we read narrative when we're confronted with these people and bringing jackets to different cities? Things like that seem like they don't matter at all. How do we read that stuff? And the answer to that question becomes, as we've been saying actually in this series a little bit, but also in other series like our Song of Solomon series back in the first part of the year and other times we're in narrative, the answer is many times as demonstrations of Christ rather than explicit statements about him. That's how you read narrative. As demonstrations of the things of God, demonstrations of his character rather than explicit statements about him. As if God is showing us through narrative what he's like rather than saying clearly what he's like. So the saying, God is just saying, this is what, this is who I am. This is, I, I blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Second Timothy 4 uh, shows uh, the things of God. It shows, uh, and we're not going to unpack that verse, so sorry. I kind of threw that out there as a dangled the fruit a bit. You know, we'll come to that next time we preach Second Timothy, which might be 20 years from now. But anyway, but just to show you these things, that, that, that there's demonstrations of care and concern. Uh, there's things that Paul is wanting to do. Second Timothy's written at the end of his life. He thinks he's going to die soon, and so he's wanting to write as much as he can. And there's different things that tell us a bit about his heart, and therefore about Christ, which is what we're going to look at today in today's passages. So to say this then is to say that Paul's, it's not just Paul's message, it's not just his preaching, but his heart towards the church that tells us about Christ. It's not just his words, it's his heart towards them that tells us about Jesus, as well as the circumstances surrounding his arrival there originally in Thessalonica. So passages like this one today are not, are, and this is another thing too, I, I don't know if you guys have heard this before or not, but it's sort of common, depends on your background, uh, to, to hear uh, the, the Bible dissected a little bit more into different categories and topics. Like Nehemiah in the Old Testament is, is, is the premier Christian book on leadership. It's a common one. Or I've heard First Thessalonians referred to as the premier Christian book on how to mentor people. And, and though there might be some truth to that, it's actually misleading uh, because it's not primarily about leadership or how to mentor people. It's primarily about Jesus. He's first and foremost. And what we do when we just, when we call these books, you know, this is a, a manual on how to mentor people in, in the Christian church or how to lead. We bypass Christ for the sake of making this about a how-to thing. It's not about a, it's not, it never says that it's that. This is about Christ. He's the hero primarily. And so passages like this then are not primarily a manual on how to pastor people, though we'll talk about that. That's a secondary issue that's really important. That'll come up here a little bit later. But again, it's first and foremost about Christ. We're just getting a glimpse of Jesus through another person's resemblance of him. 
So when you read this today, when you hear what's, you know, especially what we're about to say now, but as you yourselves read these types of books in, in the future, um, by yourself or with others, uh, read Christ into them. The point here is, as, because remember, the basis for all this is Paul saying, I'm imitating Jesus. We're not reading this in here. Paul's saying, I'm imitating the Son of God in my posture towards you. So this is, this is right from the book itself. Ask yourself that question. How is Paul, how, is the, how are these Christian leaders imitating him? How do they give me a glimpse of what Christ did before them? How is he, himself, Christ himself, the fruit of what they're doing here for, for the church? All right, so that becomes our question then that we'll spend the rest of the morning on. How is, how is Paul doing that here? How is Paul imitating Jesus Christ? And so we'll look at that, the two sides, the divine and the human. There's the Christ in, the, in these verses, and there's the human side. So for those of you, as I said before, who might be aspiring to Christian leadership or who are leaders right now in our church, or we'll, uh, we'll give you some things, but I don't want you to feel you have to be there either. These are things for, if you're a Christian, uh, you're called to be a person of influence. And so sooner or later, there's going to be someone younger in the faith under you. And, then, and you might be that person to be that Paul-like figure in, in their life. So there are principles here uh, still, still to derive. And again, just to make sure you're seeing this, in last week's passage, Paul says, imitating us and the Lord. Note the resemblance. See, he's saying, we are like Jesus to you. So, so imitate us, and as you're doing that, imitate Christ. That, that, that you, can't separate, you can't separate a Christian from Christ. We are one, one spirit with Christ, 1 Corinthians 6 says. There's no separation between us anymore. You cannot separate Christ and his people. So when you, when you see good, you're seeing the good of God. You're not seeing the good of people. You're seeing the good of God. All right, so I have five things today. Some of these will go through a little bit quicker than others, because uh, there's actually a lot more, but I boil this down to five things. How Paul's imitating Jesus. We'll start right away in verse 1, uh, just talking about the circumstances surrounding his arrival in Thessalonica, which we talked about last uh, two weeks ago, actually three weeks ago maybe now, in Acts 17. But verse 1 just says, uh, For you know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. So verse 1, Paul's imitating Jesus by arriving to see them. Paul came to see them when he evangelized them, right? And it wasn't in vain because people heard the gospel and they received. So which is, of course, exactly as we apply this divine angle to this, it's exactly what Jesus did first for us, right? He came to see us sinners, he visited us, not unlike a person goes to visit a friend in the hospital. You know, when we're, when we're lying on our backs, sick in our shame and sin, he came, to, he came to see us. He initiated salvation with us. In fact, commonly, when God is up to something amazing in the Bible, when he's saving people, especially the words, God visited them, or people might be saying, God has visited his people as, as an act of praise in the Old and the New Testament. It's a common phrase, visitation, that's given over to, uh, to God's saving works in the world. So you see, God visit them, visited them a lot. And with Christ, it's the same thing. In Luke 1, it says, in reference to um, circumstances surrounding Christ's birth, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Christ is being born of the world, and John the Baptist, uh, right before him, as kind of this final Old Testament prophet to announce his coming, and, and what does this individual say about this? He says that God has visited us. This is a sign that God has come. He has seen us in distress, and he has come to visit us. That's the word they give. He has come to be with us and to save us from our sins. So 
I think on two levels, then, this is a strong call to Christian mission and, and visitation. Uh, we, we talk about that a lot because the scriptures do, but the importance of Christians just visiting one another and, and moving from one place to another place where, Christian, where someone, the Christian could be in distress or not, but just moving to them and initiating some kind of act of love, or if they're not Christians yet, evangelization, or even if they are Christians, to, to bring the gospel to them. That movement idea is really at the heart of what the, gospel, what the gospel is. And in that, it's a call to remembrance, that God again visits sinners in distress. So our movement then towards lost sinners and Christians alike is a picture of the gospel. God comes to us, we do not go to him. Common theme actually, a motif you see a lot in the Bible is people traveling long distances to like find wives. If you go way, way back into Genesis, for example, uh, they're, they're just traveling long distances to find a bride and take her back into this land of God's presence. Exactly what God does for us. He travels a long distance to claim, to claim a bride, us, the church, to woo us to himself, to save us, to make us white, give us a white gown, marry us. The Bible uses all marital language to refer to salvation and to bring us back into his kingdom. Exactly what he's doing. But the distance idea is, is this key uh, motif that, that is a problem that God uh, surpasses. So it's our mission to do that as Christians, to resemble what Paul's doing here, but not before we remember that it was God's mission first. God saw us far from him, and he traveled to us to, to, to visit us in distress and to save us from our sins. It's primarily what it is. It's a, it's a remembrance thing. So verse 1, that's first how Paul is imitating Christ here. He just went to see them. All right, second, verse, verses 4 and 5, uh, this is great too. Uh, Paul says, or let me just read the verses first, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery. So Paul did not seek to please men when he was there. He, he did not seek glory from people when he was, was around them, which is such a great ministry principle. Uh, you remember this too in Acts 17, if you were here for that, or if you know this story, Paul preached Many rebelled, many rejected. He was driven out of the city by an angry mob. Most of us haven't had that experience in evangelization yet, but it happened to him, the apostle, God wrote half the New Testament. He, had, he saw widespread acceptance, but widespread uh, rejection. And, and in that, he clearly wasn't seeking to please people, right? If he was, he'd, he'd, he'd fail. So he, he's saying, I, I wasn't trying to make people happy here. Ultimately, I was trying to please God, seeking his glory alone with the message he gives me. And, and this phrase in verse 5 is really important too. Is it, it, they're all related here, but this is a helpful kind of disclaimer. For we never came with words of flattery. We never came with words of flattery. Uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't flatter us. It doesn't puff us up. It doesn't draw on our inherent worth or wisdom. Rather, it talks of a God who had to become a human being to die for us or no one would be saved. Which, if we really understand that message, it does the opposite of flatter us, right? It, it, the gospel doesn't say, oh, you're doing such a good job, kind of patting the back. You're, Keep it up. You're doing so good. You know, stay in the game. You know, I'll be cheering from the sidelines. It's not the gospel. It's not flattering. It's not about us. It's about God. So if we really understand the nature of the gospel, we, our mouths shut before him. We have nothing to say. We, we adore him. We receive what he gives. We're, we're humbled, not, not flattered into our pride, but humbled 
by it. Because it says, nothing you could do could ever save you. So God had to come to die for you. And it's a greatly encouraging message. Don't get me wrong. It's joy-giving. It's encouraging. We see the love of God in it. But it also offends because, again, it says on our best day, on our best day, we're still a billion miles from God. So he had to come to us. The fact that, going back to the first thing we, we just talked about today, the fact that God came to earth screams we are not good people and we can't climb the ladder to him. Otherwise, what's he doing, right? He's not waiting for us to come to him. He's coming to us. He had to or no one would be, would be saved. So grace, then, as the scriptures say, is a stumbling block. It actually does trip people up like a, a thick root and a, you know, a, a terrain course or something as people are running across it. It trips the proud up because grace says, doesn't flatter us, it's, it preaches grace. And, and, and that's a good principle to understand here, too. Grace never flatters because grace says, undeserved but yours. So grace is, is giving us this message of you don't deserve this, but it's being given nonetheless. So it can't flatter, right? Grace never flatters. Grace never flatters. It preaches God's. It says you're loved, but you're evil. You're, you're loved, but you're not good. But, but you're being pursued by a God nonetheless who's willing to die for you to make you righteous in his eyes. That's what grace says. But you see how that message, at the heart of it, there's not even a whiff of flattery. Because nothing we've done is, has turned his head. Nothing we've done has, has, has kind of lured him here except his, his love for lost people like us. And so Christ then being the source of this message, we see this in his ministry as well. He didn't give himself to, over to people. In John 2 it says he didn't entrust himself to people because he knew what was in people. Uh, as the son of God, he was always looking out how, for how to be obedient to, the, to God, his God the Father his father in heaven, his message was, I love you, not because of what you've done, but just because of my unconditional choice and grace. And so when he's, when he's saying that, that's offensive to religious people who think they're something when they're nothing, but he's embodying this as well by spending time with the worst of people and not spending time with really good people. You ever notice that theme in the Gospels, or have you Maybe you have and you've forgotten about that. Remember that the main antagonist in the Gospels are really good religious people. It's not Satan, though he's one of the main ones, that the main antagonist that you see, at least in terms of the ink given over to it in the Gospels, are really good religious spiritual people who think they're good when they're not. They are the enemies of God, primarily. The enemies of Christ, the ones who actually lead him to the cross and want him dead pretty early on in the narratives when he starts talking about uh, these types of matters, really, and all kinds of other sub-matters as well, which I can't go into today. But Christ is doing this. He, he's offending as he's loving because grace trips people up. It trips proud people up, pr people like us, because uh, we think that we have something to offer God when we really don't. So Paul did not seek to please men. He did not seek glory from people. Great ministry principle, by the way, too. Uh, if you're looking to, I mean, just live as a Christian, um, it's just no one's going to, not everyone's going to love you. Your message will offend. It, it, and as you talk about grace, especially, not like necessarily things that might pop into your head when you think about offensive things. This is grace. Talking about grace and love will, will offend people. Uh, it's happened here a lot at the church, happened in my life, happened in a lot of your lives. If it hasn't yet, it will. But 
happened in Christ's life, happened in Paul's. It's actually so much the case in the Bible that if everyone loves you as a Christian, if, if you have no enemies as a Christian, if your message never causes stumbling, then your chances are you're doing it wrong. And you've got to think about the nature of what you're actually saying to people. Are you flattering or are you preaching grace? Very different. They, they, they couldn't be more different. They're opposite ends of whatever spectrum you want to call that. You can't do both. Uh, you, you, can, you can preach Christ. You can preach God. You can preach gospel. You can preach how much we need him. But in that, we, we simply, by definition, do not flatter people. All right, that was the second thing. Third thing, verse 9. Uh, Paul did uh, not make demands. He says here, uh, we, he says we worked night and day with our hands that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So this is the third way Paul is imaging Christ in, in copying him, imitating him. He worked night and day not to be a burden to them as he proclaimed the gospel to them. So he's saying here, uh, he didn't ask much of them financially and otherwise. Though he could have, he actually says in the other part of the passage I alluded to, it wasn't unlawful as an apostle to ask for compensation uh, to be there as a pastor type among him. He just says that he, he lived in a way around them that didn't contrast the message he was preaching. Again, this is a gospel thing. There's a divine angle on this. Christ came to work for us, not call us to work for him. He came to serve us, not call us to serve him. So Paul didn't say, Christ worked day and night for you to hell and back on the cross that you might be saved, but then himself didn't work for them. He didn't say, God saves you by grace alone and lavishes the riches of his love on you through his son, but then say, you need to pay me a super high salary and lavish on me all kinds of benefits for being the one to bring this message. Right? Contrasting. He didn't, he didn't say... Um, and it, quote Jesus' words in Matthew eleven thirty, 30, which is, my, my yoke, Jesus says, is easy, and my burden is light. I have no burden for you. I'm, save, I'm liberating you. I'm cutting the, that heavy yoke of sin and inability to keep God's commandments and all of that in your shame, your guilt off your back. I'm liberating you. My burden is light. Paul didn't quote that. And then um, make them work extra hard for him. In his, in his presence, right? Those would be, all those would be inconsistent, uh, or his actions would be inconsistent competing testimonies to the gospel if he were to act that way. So the gospel is, God has worked for you on the cross. So he's saying, you know, you know when I was among you, Paul, saying that I did not demand much of you. I worked night and day with my hands. I had a, I had a side job, essentially, so that you didn't have to pay me, so that there would not be, there's no pretext for greed here. I was doing this because God sent me, because I, I care for you, I love you. And so that, we can kind of read in, in between the lines here in the subtext, so that you would see a Christ who does not, is not asking anything of you except to believe, like Paul did. All he said is believe the message I'm giving you. It's exactly what Jesus does. He's the answer. Believe in me. No list of huge demands. Where's the scroll? Where's the Ten Commandments? Right? Absence gloriously here. He's saying, I am the new way you get to God. Cast yourself upon me. Believe in me, and you will, you will be saved. As a reflection of that, Paul worked hard for them. Paul worked hard for them. Paul worked hard night and day for them that he would not be a burden to them 
but a liberating presence, uh, physically and spiritually. So amazing for the Thessalonians, right? I mean, to, to be hearing this gospel about what, what, who Christ is to them, but then having this remembrance physically by having an apostle, by Paul, their, their church planner, their, their pastor, living in a way around them that um, kind of calls them to remember how Christ first uh, lived around all of us. Not as a demander, but a load easer and a grace giver. So in that, Paul imitates Christ. Third. Fourth, uh, verses 7 and 8. Paul was gentle with them like a nursing mother, affectionately desirous of them, sharing with them his very self. Some commentators uh, call this verse the most raw picture we get of Paul's pastoral heart in the entire New Testament, right here, in these uh, few words. Actually, it was this paragraph, but pretty much these few words. The guy just loved them. He loved them. And love looks like gentleness with people. It looks like affectionate desire or just liking people. Uh, I think love and, loving and liking, sometimes you kind of have to have that uh, you know, both ways. I mean, Letha and I joke because sometimes she just wants to hear that I like her too. <laughs> so I love that. Like I tell her I love her like 20 times a day, but do you like me? Yeah, but anyway. Um, love and liking is, we, and I say the same thing, but it's, it's, it's different. So he just likes them. He misses them. He misses them. His, his heart aches for these people because he's not with them right now. When he writes this letter, he's hundreds of miles south. And it looks like, love looks like sharing our very selves with people as well, which for Paul would have been the essence of his message as well, as we apply this to Christ. And as we apply it to Christ, all these things I just mentioned, it's almost impossible to fathom Christ's likeness to us. Again, if the grid is Paul's actions are an imperfect imitation of Christ's greater actions to us, that's the grid as it should be here, it's almost unfathomable <laughs> that this is God's posture towards us lost sinners and rebels to, uh, towards him. But it is. Uh, the scriptures speak of, of Christ, God in Christ being gentle to us. He's the stronger party who speaks gently to sinners when others are ready to, th to throw stones. He is one of my favorite things about God. Just one thing I at least go, go to all the time scripturally is the idea that God, this self kind of disclosure he gives of being slow to anger and quick to show love. That's who God is to you. He's slow to anger. If you didn't just rejoice when I said that right now, hear what I'm saying. God is slow to anger over your sin towards him. Praise God he's not quick to be angry, right? Praise God he's not like that. And praise, praise God he's quick to show love. Slow to be angry at you, though he does get angry over sin. He's grieved over it, but slow, much slower than you think actually, but quick, speedy. To express love. He's constantly doing it. So he's gentle in that. In Christ, uh, God shares his very self with us, right? Saying, this is what Christ gave is his very body. Jesus at the, at the table, the last supper, he said with his disciples, he took the bread and, and broke it and gave it, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. So looking ahead a few hours, to, and we'll celebrate this in just a minute here. Looking ahead, he said, this bread is, is being broken. It's a gift, though. Look at the word given. He's giving his actual body, his actual self, entirely over to people he loves. Here's my body. It's going to be absolutely mutilated for you. 
though you should be, but I'm going to be for you. That's how, that's how much I love you. Do this in remembrance of me. So eat and drink in remembrance of the essence of salvation, that God has given his very self over to us. Isn't that amazing? You know, that God is like that, 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 he's, not, that he's not a billion miles away just saying some things or kind of watching, but he's, he's in the world. He's become a human being. He's given his actual body his son has over, over to us for our salvation, that he might die instead of us. Incredible. And so in all of that, this third thing is God has affectionate desire. He likes us, not just loves us. When we were separated from him, back in Genesis 3, when all hell broke loose and sin came into the world, he saw that as a problem. Right away, he sees it as a problem, right? He judges the parties involved, but he immediately starts to speak about resolution. He doesn't just destroy the world and say, start over and kind of dust his hands off. He immediately works for resolution. He sees it as a problem, that there was an obstacle between. He casts Adam and Eve out of the garden, away from his presence, and immediately starts to resolve. And Christ is that resolution who comes, who comes later. But Christ is spoken of immediately as the seed of Eve, uh, who would stomp on the snake's head, Satan's head, and all that he helped bring into the world in rebellion against God, and all that hell that came with him, he, he will stomp on the head of it, the, the seed of Eve, Christ will ultimately. So he saw it as a problem, he set out to fix it, because he wanted to be close to us again. So really, what, what he's like here, and think Song of Solomon, if you were here in, in the early part of the year, as we talked about a husband's love for a wife, and how that resembles Christ's love for the church, he is like a husband wanting to be close to his wife. That's what God is like. And whatever you just thought of right there, it's way better than that. You, you might have resembled that, and you can, you can kind of tap into that, and that's great. Some of you just haven't had that experience in your marriage, or your parents didn't, and it's harder for you, and I understand that. But what this is saying is it's true, and God is a good father. He's like a good father, because he, he is a good father, but when you say he's a good father, we think of fathers that are imperfect, right? So he's better than that. He's a perfect, perfect, perfect father. He's not ob and husband. He's not obligated to love you. He just, he just loves us. He actually intends it um, with, with his son. So, so the, God, the idea that God has affectionate desire for us, try thinking about, and when, when you're stuck in sin or feel distant from God, apply that to the arsenal of the way that you think spiritually right, right in the context of that. Do you think about this? When you're stuck in sin, do you think God is affectionately desirous of me right now? Probably not, right? Maybe you do, and that's great. If you do, praise God. That's from him. But, but if you don't, know your gospel better. The gospel says he does not care how much you sin because he's bled for it. See, he's forgotten it already. So in, in the midst of sin, in the midst of you fighting against God with all of your will, he's still looking at you and seeing perfection. He's still looking at you and seeing a cleansing. He's looking at you and seeing a washed, perfect child of God. And he's affectionately desirous of you. That thought, will kill your sin, I say this from experience, from the scriptures, it will stop your sin in its tracks more than any kind of religious law-filled thought you could ever muster. The thought of God being loving will interrupt your sinful desires. It will. It's amazing. The, the power of God's in the gospel. Not in saying, be perfect, be good. That's not flattering, right? It's saying the power of God is in being loved. The power of God is in cherishing his love more than the all the gods of this world, no matter how much we lust after them, 
God turns us and gives us a greater picture of himself. But that idea of God being affectionately desirous of us to actually believe it. And if you don't believe it, pray that you would. Pray that God will help you to believe it more. Because none of us in the room believe it well enough. Uh, that's not the point. We're not saved by how well you think about it. You're just saved. So, so trust that that's true and, and apply that gospel thought to your mind in the, in the throes of sin so that he will, with that loving thought, re-identify you as not just sinner, but sinner saved and loved by God. And, uh, and things will change, I promise you. Christ promises that. Verses 11 and 12, uh, this is the fifth and final thing here, uh, in that, is that Paul was like a father to children in his exhortation and his encouragement. So interesting, right, that he says, you know, that, that Paul was like a, a nursing mother in that mother's gentleness, but here he's like a father in a father's exhortation and encouragement and his charge to his kids. So interesting kind of dual perspective, right, of this parenting kind of thing here. Tons of gentleness and tons of exhortation. So his gentleness then does not preclude his role as an exhorter, as a father-type figure in their midst, as an encourager. But, but note here, and what I really want you to see is that he calls himself a father and not a boss. He's not, their, he's not the, their, the church's employer, and nor is, nor is God ultimately to us. In Christ, he's a dad. In Christ, he's a loving father who encourages, not a boss who says, here's your stuff to do today. Come see me at the end of December for a performance review. Not what God is like. God is a, a father. You've already been deemed his child because Jesus has died for your sins. You've already been adopted into his family. You can't lose that. So in the context of that, in that safe context of love, God says, here's how to live in, in my house. Here's how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been, we have been called. So he's a gentle truth speaker, uh, Paul is, in God first, uh, who helps us repent and walk upright. But here's, uh, here's what he ultimately encourages. And if I want to say this, especially for those of you who have never heard this before. It's so important. What you think about when you think about God encouraging you and exhorting you to live is really important. It will dictate a lot about your spirituality, and, um, and it will protect you from legalism as well, putting law before God. 1 John 3, 23, elsewhere in the New Testament talks about this is Christ's ultimate commandment. This is what Christ wants you and I to do. This is what he really commands. And it actually is in some ways, different than what you see in the Old Testament, because that's preparatory. It leads to this new way, this new covenant. In John 13, Jesus actually says, a new commandment I give you. This was not commanded earlier in the story. It's new, something fresh and different, distinct from the old way. I am commanding you now, and it has to do with me. This is what he says. In John, 1 John 3, he says, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, we trust in him for salvation and that we love one another just as he has commanded us. And in John 13, he says, love as I have loved you. So that's, that's it. See how that, that, Going back to Matthew 11 and what Paul said here about not being a burden, see how that's a light thing? It's, it's a burden-free way of living. It's not, it's not about us. It's, it's about Christ. He's the hero. Just believe. The work of God is that you believe in the one he has sent, John 6. The work of God is that you believe in the one he has sent. The work he wants you to do is to believe in the one he has sent. Believe. That's your job. Cast your cares upon him. Put faith in him. That's the commandment. That's the new thing. 
uh, for the people of God in this New Testament or New Covenant era. And as an extension of that love, have deep, deep love for, for the people of God and for people who don't know him yet. As a reflection, not to be saved by how well you do that, because if you think that, I promise you you'll leave Christ. You'll fall flat on your face. You will not be living distinctly as a believer. It's not do this well or else. It is, that's religion. Uh, the, the gospel says Christ has loved you. So in that place of safety, in that safety net, in that place of I can't lose this, that place, that gospel place, live out of that. Live freely out of that and, and show love to people who don't like you like you weren't liking God when he saved you. Show love to your enemies like you were an enemy of God when he saved you. Not just people who like you. Do the hard work of loving people that you don't like very much and they don't like you. We have that. Uh, the only way you can do that, and this is, this is what Jesus' words here. He says, love your enemies. The only way we can do that is to believe in a gospel of enemy love. Where God loved us and we were his enemies, we were not lovable people. We were actively staging a coup against him when God interrupted that with his, with his son and, and saved us. If, if, if that's your narrative and your storyline, it will be much easier to love people that are, that are unlovable in your life. But if it's not, it's going to be a lot harder. If, if you're, obviously, if you're not saved yet, but if you're a Christian and you're not grounded in this type of gospel, it will be very, very difficult to do what the Bible is actually calling us to do here is have a radical kind of earth-shattering, non-Christians can never live this out kind of love. So that it will turn heads and it will make Christ famous and move the mission of the gospel forward as we preach this message and live this way in kind of an undergirding kind of way, complementary kind of way like we talked about last week. All right, so a couple of things here to wrap up and we'll respond with communion and, and worship. First, the, the point then to all of this is to see Christ in this. He's the hero, even when others' actions, like your own and mine, are in focus. So Jesus is always the hero. Uh, like Paul's loving heart and ministry towards one of his churches, our love is not an end in itself. It, it, your love is never an end in itself. It, it never exists on an island, ever, ever. God is always the point. He's always the hero. He's always the, the one behind the curtains allowing that to happen, but also allowing it to happen so that he would be the one pointed to through it. So our love is not an end in and of itself, but a reflection of the God whose name is love. So here's the gospel then. If I uh, just summarize this and put it into a few words, the summary of this passage, but also the gospel according to this passage, I would uh, put it this way. Jesus Christ came to you when you were lying on your back, sick in your sin and shame, and not only spoke gently to you, but gave his very self to you when he died for you on a cross, working hard for your salvation, not becoming a burden to you, but a liberator, and then encouraging you to believe in him and love as a reflection of his great love for you. That's the point of 1 Thessalonians 2. He's the hero. He gets the fame. He gets the praise primarily now secondarily then what do we take from this and if again this is for all of you but for those of you especially who are in leadership here pursuing that here in a different church see the opportunity uh, you have as a christian to live similarly towards other believers and non-believers so as to remind them what christ's salvation is really like this really is a thing it should be a thing for the church if, if that's a foreign thing for you i just encourage you in that to, to wed these two ideas that your actions towards non-Christians should live out of God's actions towards you. 
It's all, if you read the New Testament, it's all over the place. Ephesians is great for this. Ephesians 4.32, I think, says, Forgive as Christ and God forgave you. Forgive each other as God first forgave you in Christ. Ephesians 5.1 and 2 says, Love as, as God first loved you in Christ. He's always grounding these ethical commands in what God has first done. So it's gospel, not rote ethic. It's saying God has done something amazing in the world. Believe first, then live out of that freely. Freely. Primarily with, with love. And so do that. And if, and if you're led to do this, like I said before, uh, and you've got to be careful, of course, when you do this, but it's, it's not wrong like Paul's doing here to highlight the good in your life for those who are maybe being blessed by it for the sake of making Jesus famous. You may feel like you're arrogant then, but you're not. If you're really understanding that Jesus is the cause of all your good works, if you really believe that, you'll be more inclined to naturally say, and I've said this before to, um, to, to non-Christians even, that I've, been, that I've been a friend with before they were saved, they've just been impacted by the church's kindness and, and me being one of those people in, in this person's life. And so trying to help them see that the kindness in me is really God's. So I've even said that, like, you've seen my kindness towards you. You've seen my patience. You've seen my genuine love. That's actually the Lord. That's what it means here when it says these things about Jesus in the Bible right here in this verse. Those are not disconnected. This, this is why you're attracted to the people of God. You're actually being attracted to Christ. And so with non-Christians, it's very evangelistic. It's a great tool. With Christians, they already have connected those final dots. And so you're actually reminding them of something they already believe in. But however that takes shape, um, your humility and your maturity in the gospel will, will dictate how much you can talk this way to people that you know well, and obviously not just to everybody. We'll get misunderstood. But, um, but this is something that you can, you can imitate. This is not arrogance if you believe everything is from him and nothing is from you. If you don't, then it is arrogance, and you shouldn't say anything. But if you believe that all good things are from God, every good thought and gift and action and act of love and kindness is a gift from him, then um, go and so speak. Go and so live. Go and so make God famous. Go and so preach. Go and so preach that robust gospel and make him all the more just alive in your life and, and the giver of all good things because he gets fame, you get joy in that, and the church is built up. So let's pray. God, thanks so much for uh, this passage today and for who you are in it. Uh, thank you for speaking to us the gospel again from a fresh angle of apostle imitation, uh, Paul's imitation of you, and uh, how, we, how we see a reflection of you in, uh, in that. So, God, I pray that we would, um, as we respond here through communion and song, that you'd be uh, glorified and worshiped, that those here today who have never believed yet in a, in a true gospel that does not flatter, but, it, but still leads to love in a way that a flattering gospel never could, that you would save them today and show them that you love them, and the only thing in, that needs to be in between them and you is Christ and him crucified, a substitute, an act of love, a gift, a sacrifice of atonement, a cleansing act, uh, something that you gave uh, the world for all who believe to cast themselves on and to say, please, uh, Christ, save me from my sins, die for me, make me righteous in your eyes, even though I'm not, but you're a substitute, so in God's eyes, may you forget my sin. I pray, we pray for that, God, and for all of us here who are Christians for the saints, help us to persevere in faith with thankfulness for everything, literally everything in life we'd thank you for because you're alone the giver of it, all good things, and um, that we ourselves would uh, praise you for your gentleness and 
burden-free gospel and uh, just rejoice. So in Christ's name we pray it all. Amen. All right, you guys. Um, for the remainder of our time together, we're going to sing a few songs and during that time take communion together. And I quoted uh, Luke twenty two nineteen 19 earlier, which is one of the things that Jesus says before his death, hours before his death, when he's having dinner, called the Last Supper, with his disciples. He breaks bread and pours out wine and says, this is my body given for you, and this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So, and this is a new covenant, he says, a new testament. This is, this is, it's very clear uh, in terms of what's going to happen on the cross just hours from now. He's going to establish a new way of God, a new testament way of God relating to people, and it's going to be bent completely on what the bread and the cup represent. His death and his shedding of blood and ultimately his resurrection. So because he dies, we can relate to God. Because he dies, we know we're loved. Because he dies, uh, we know that we're given to uh, generously, that it's by grace we're saved. God's saying this had to happen. What this represents had to occur for us to be, for us to be saved. So it's glorious. Like I mentioned before up here too, before communion, isn't it glorious that Christ doesn't start to bring people back at the meal, kind of getting a pep talk going and saying, all right, guys, this is a, we're refreshing things here at the Last Supper, let's whip out the Ten Commandments and really get serious about this. Where is it? Where is that verse? Nowhere, right? This is a new law, a new way, a new covenant. It's different, the Bible says, different than the old. Uh, Jeremiah actually 31, the Old Testament says, before Jesus even got on the scene, says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, not like the covenant I made with Israel when they came up out of Egypt. Not like the Old Testament. Different and yet we tend to kind of do this to them so much sometimes. We tend to say, well, it's, it's actually a lot like it. Jesus is sort of refreshing the old. He's given us the spirit so that we can keep the, keep the laws kind of by ourselves really well. Very common uh, heretical type thing that's alive in the, in the evangelical church today is that the Old Testament is actually still kind of going on. When Christ comes on the scene, he says, New Testament, it's about me, it's about my blood, my body, that's it. Because this old way wasn't keepable. You couldn't keep it. It, it. it was built on faulty promises, Hebrews 8 says in the New Testament. Faulty promises based on people's ability to go to God when it was never the whole. So God gave that for a time to lead to this, to show how it was never about us. Never about In our sin, we go our own way, and we think that we're something when we're nothing, like we talked about before. So laws made sin bigger. Christ came in to say, I'm the new law. I'm the new mediator between God and people. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that. There's only one mediator between God and man, the, the man, Christ Jesus. Notice he says nothing about law, right? Isn't that awesome? Be free in that, you guys. As you take communion, if you're a Christian today, remember that, that this is the only thing now that I don't care what you did this morning, what you thought, how much you hurt yourself or people or offended God, how much shame you have, Christ bled for it. He loves you. And so come up here today. We've practiced open communion here, which means you don't have to be a member of our church. If you're a Christian, we welcome you uh, to partake. Come in a celebratory, thankful manner. Uh, the Eucharist is a Greek word meaning thankfulness. So this is about being thankful. God has given you something here. It's a gift. He loves you. He's come our way. He's visited us, right? And salvation is here. And so come during any time during the four songs, the set of songs. Come on down and break bread back to your seats and uh, or up front if you want and take the cup and the people up front too would love to pray for you myself included if you want to get prayer during any time the set we'd love to pray for you but um and if you're not a christian yet just come talk to us and you're interested 
you want to take communion, just come and talk to us first. We'd love to talk to you more about uh, belief, and then we'd love to have you take communion after that, but I'll be up front if you want to chat too. So, Invite the band up here, and uh, I'll pray one more time, and we'll get started. God, thank you again for what this meal represents. Thank you so much for the wine, the, the poured-out cup. Thank you for the broken bread uh, that points us to the cross where your body and blood symbolized here were broken and shed uh, for the people of God so that justice can be done, justice against rebels and sinners, that, that the wrath of God against it can be poured out in a just, good manner, but love can ensue as well. Love and mercy and forgiveness can ensue because it passes over. All of that wrath passes over us now. So that as Romans uh, 8, 8, 1, I believe, says, there's, now, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in the Lord, who, are, who, who cast themselves upon him and believe. So God, help us now to sing, uh, to be thankful uh, together and individually, and uh, to take this spiritual meal in faith and trust that it is sufficient. It is indeed, again, gloriously sufficient to save us. Christ's name we pray. Amen.